I need to begin by uh, letting you know that I suffer from an, an incurable disorder known as right in front of meitis. Uh, it's uh, one of these disorders that's plagued mankind since sin has come into this world, and unfortunately, it seems to be a problem more with us men than with you gals. Uh, let me give you an example of how this manifests itself in my life. Um, what you're looking at here is a picture of the crozy pantry in our home, and I'll give you just a moment to admire my wife's uh, organizing abilities. You can fit so much in a very small space, and my wife takes that to the extreme, and God bless her, there's a lot in there, except when it comes time to finding something, because the other day I needed uh, uh, another box of this, probiotics. Uh, we take daily probiotics, and it's been good for our health, but I ran out. So I asked my wife uh, where more were, and she said, well, they're in the pantry. I told you about that. And in fact, I even showed you where they were. And of course, I should have been paying attention, but I wasn't. Uh, so that's a second disorder I suffer from. Um, but I, I went in there. I didn't want to eat crow too much. So I looked around, and I couldn't find them. I looked all over. I scanned the whole place. Uh, I moved around, stuff around. And for the life of me, I could not find it. I knew there were several boxes in there. I absolutely knew it. And so this disorder that I suffer from had raised its ugly head, and I had to swallow my pride. And of course, I asked my wife, would you please find them for me? And she walks in, and two seconds later, she walks out with them. So either she's a witch and can conjure things out of thin air, which I highly doubt, or else I can look at something and just not see it. By the way, they were right behind that little white lid, liddy thing right there. I had actually looked there, and I had moved that thing around, and I could not see those things. So I suffer from right in front of me itis. Now, I can make it through this life with this disorder. I mean, it's inconvenient at times, but the problem is, is it shows up like that too much in our spiritual lives. Uh, part of the goal of our epiphany study, we've been looking at these texts from Mark, and each and every one of them have given us a little glimpse of the hidden glory of Jesus. Well, today that comes full circle, uh, the transfiguration, when Jesus' outward appearance literally morphs in front of the disciples' eyes, he takes back the veil. And that's the closest we get to see the full glory of God this side of heaven. And it is amazing to see what Jesus really looks like uh, in this fuller vision of glory. But unfortunately, as sinful human beings, sometimes we just don't see what is right in front of us. So what we've done now is the way the Epiphany study was designed was to give us these little glimpses, and today we bring it full circle because every one of these glimpses have literally left people with jaws open. They are in amazement. We actually studied four different terms that Mark used to describe the type of amazement that people have as a reaction when they get to see these little glimpses of Jesus' glory. Today the lesson, and it helps us to understand transfiguration a little bit better, is we find the one thing that amazes God. You've already heard the first half of that. Unfortunately, one of the things that amazes God is a lack of faith. But hold on a second. There's something else that also amazes God. It's when faith is deep and abiding and trusts him. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 8. It's the only non-marked lesson we have for the entire Epiphany season because only Matthew and Luke record this event. We'll get into that just a little bit. And what you're going to see is what this centurion that Jesus uh, crosses paths with in the city of Capernaum has such a deep faith that it even amazes Jesus.
When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Okay, that's the lesson that we're going to study today. And before we actually dig into it, there, there's a couple things that we need to clarify. One is let's set the context. Um, Matthew doesn't always record things chronologically. And even if you take a look at that context lesson that we had from Mark, um, what we find is some leapfrogging. So Jesus had been rejected in his own hometown uh, a second time. He had established a new base of operation in the city of Capernaum. Matthew records that just before our lesson, Jesus completes the teaching of his Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters recording the amazing things that Jesus is teaching to the people publicly. When that comes to an end, we find he has a short journey back to his hometown. Best estimates put the Sermon on the Mount in the area of Chorazin. You can't see the whole name because it's blocked by the, the red dot thingy there but it would have been a quick journey back to Capernaum and Matthew establishes that as Jesus is entering the town, he crosses paths with this Roman centurion. And I've used that phrase, crosses paths, because that leads into the next thing that we need to make sure we understand. I told you it's recorded in Matthew and Matthew makes it sound as if Jesus and the centurion actually have a face-to-face -face conversation. If you go to Luke chapter 7, you actually find that's not really what was taking place. Luke records for us that the centurion himself will not approach Jesus, but rather he sends some delegates or ambassadors, if you will, some of the Jewish elders. And he established a pretty good relationship in Capernaum, even as a Roman Gentile's because he was friendly to the Jewish people. He had actually built a synagogue there for him. So it was one of those good working relationships. He was there to guard the town and keep order, but he'd also been very benevolent towards the citizens of that city. Now, this is one of those places where Bible critics just love uh, to tear the Bible apart. They say, see, see, the, the Bible's full of mistakes. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. What these critics fail to realize is the context and writing styles of Matthew versus Luke. Matthew's really not a detail guy, and he writes for a Jewish audience, whereas Luke is much more detail-oriented, and he's writing for a Gentile audience. And that quickly and easily explains now why is there a difference in the record, even as the Holy Spirit inspires them. Well, Luke is trying to teach Gentiles that this Roman centurion understood this concept of Gentiles and Jews not really mixing. And despite the fact that this Roman centurion was very friendly towards the Jewish people, it already suggests that there is a level of respect and honor towards Jesus that this centurion holds. We'll get into that more, but it, it begins to show us the depth and level of this man's faith. Matthew doesn't concern himself with those details because he's writing to a Jewish audience. He knows that the Jews get this. So he just kind of skips over that. That's how Matthew tends to write. There's no contradiction. They actually coordinate quite nicely. And in a little while, Matthew will explain 
with some more detail so that we realize he wrote it in an accurate way. Okay, so as Jesus makes his way into Capernaum, these delegates of the Roman centurion approach Jesus, and they present to him that this man has a problem, a very severe problem. And if you dig into the text, that word servant is accurate, but there's a little bit more description to it. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Septuagint, but that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it uses the exact same word that is found in Matthew's text, this word pious. And it literally means a young boy, and it's usually used to refer to a servant or a slave. It's used to describe Joseph when he sold into slavery. So we're dealing with a young man, uh, probably his teenage years, and he has a severe illness. And Matthew goes on to tell us what the er that illness is, paralyticus. And normally that's what we think of as paralysis. That's where we get the word paralytic from. Uh, until you start actually stacking up the details and the facts of what Matthew's writing, God offers us some pretty neat insight into what this Roman centurion was so concerned about. And this is where the coordinating lesson from Luke helps. It wasn't just a young servant that this Roman centurion had invested money and he didn't want to die. It was a servant of his that he cared very deeply for. Um, this man seems to be just a good-hearted man, not only the way that he treated the people of Capernaum, but the way he treated his own staff. And now this young servant boy is struggling mightily. And one of the things is if you start to really look through the etymology of that word, you find that Matthew is describing this boy has a, a degenerative muscle issue. So when you deal with the, the fact that it's a young boy and it's this muscular degenerative disease, and then we'll look at something on the other side of this video I'm about to show you, we can't know exactly specifically which disease it is, but it would fall into the category known as muscular dystrophies. Now I want to just share with you a little information about that if you're not familiar with it, and you'll realize why this man found himself in such a desperate situation. Muscular dystrophies are a group of genetic diseases that cause progressive muscle weakness and loss of muscle mass. The most common form is called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's caused by a faulty gene that is not working to properly produce an essential protein called dystrophin. Proteins are molecules that play roles in the structure and function of our body's tissues. Dystrophin is key for how our muscles work. Since the dystrophin gene is carried on the X chromosome, Duchenne affects primarily boys. This means that females can be carriers, typically without symptoms, but can then pass it along to children. Symptoms of Duchenne can start as early as age three, affecting muscles that move the hips, thighs, and shoulders. Muscle weakness gets worse with age, also affecting the heart and respiratory muscles, leading to life-threatening complications, including disease of the heart muscle and breathing difficulties. There is no known cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I wanted to for sure get that, fact, that last fact in there. Even 2,000 years later, there's, there's still no medical cure for muscular dystrophy type diseases. And you heard what happens, and that's why oftentimes it's simply translated or interpreted as paralysis, because in the latter stages of the muscular dystrophies diseases is you lose the use of your limbs, specifically your legs. And then it seems as if this young servant boy was probably in those late stages where it was affecting his heart and his breathing. And then Matthew includes that one other fact that translates out as terrible suffering. But when you actually take a look at the word that Matthew uses, it literally describes the concept of hitting rock bottom. And that can have a physical effect, telling us he was in the late stages of this disease, but it also has a psychological and emotional effect 
quite honestly, one of the things that concerned this Roman centurion was not just the physical condition of his servant, but the fact that, quite honestly, this young man that he cared so deeply about had pretty much lost his will to live. And so he sends this delegation of Jewish elders to Jesus asking for a miracle. It's basically, would you please come and help my young servant? And of course, Jesus' response is what we would expect. In great love and mercy, of course, I will come to your house and I will heal your servant. And before we actually get into that, there's something I want us to note because it will matter later on. It will tell us the depths of this Roman centurion's faith. There is a word that Jesus used for healing that we end up getting our English word therapeutic from it. If you understand how therapy works, you're, you're dealing with the problem. You're addressing that difficulty or, or malady that is affecting or causing the problem. And, and that is one way to look at healing, is let's take care of whatever issue is making you sick. That's the term that Jesus uses. Just as a heads up, spoiler alert, the Roman centurion is also going to talk about healing, but he's actually going to use a different term which in many ways is much the same concept, but there's a subtle difference that reveals just how much this man trusts Jesus, not only as Messiah, but as the one who can actually heal his servant. Now, when the word comes back to the Roman centurion that Jesus is willing to come and heal the young man, he stops and he doesn't want it to go that way. He actually sends back these elders with an alternative plan. Lord, um, tell you what, why don't you not come to my house? And he's not trying to be insulting. Uh, he's not trying to be dishonorable. In fact, he's doing just the opposite. This man understands very well the relationship that the Jews and Gentiles had uh, experienced over not just millenn—I'm sorry, centuries, but millennia. Quite, quite honestly, they don't mix. Now, he had actually fought against the biases and bigotry between Romans—I'm sorry—between the Roman Gentiles and the Jews by his uh, kindness towards the people in Capernaum. But he knows who Jesus is. He refers to him as his Lord, so he recognizes him not only as Messiah, but also as a Jewish rabbi, meaning that he was unwilling to place Jesus in a compromised position. Because while it would be okay for the ordinary man on the street, for a Roman and Jew to rub shoulders, he knew what could be said of Jesus if he had actually entered into a Gentile home. So his alternative suggestion was, don't come, just speak the word. Just say that my servant will be healed, and I know he will. And now this is the flip side of that word for healing, because when the man actually gets into it, what he's talking about is not just addressing the malady or the problem that brings about the disease, but this concept for healing says, basically, I trust you, Jesus, will restore this man to a state of health as if he had never been sick in the first place. When you take a step back and look at what he's saying is he's acknowledging that God created the human body in a perfect form and he recognizes that sin itself is what has caused the problems that we face in day-to-day -day life. He's saying to Jesus, I know that if you say the word, you will restore this man to that original state of perfection, not spiritually. He recognizes that Jesus will heal our sin, but that was yet to come. You can actually make my servant's body whole. Not that it wouldn't be ravaged by the effects of sin, not that he wouldn't die someday, but in this specific situation, he will be as God intended him to be in this life. It gives us insight into this man's faith. Not only did he trust Jesus and come to heal us from our sins, but he knew that he had the power and the glory to just say so, and his servant would be healed. Our study really demands that we pause for a moment and ask what I will suggest is a very difficult question. 
Do we have the kind of faith that the centurion has? Uh, and I know maybe we don't want to answer it, maybe we don't want to wrestle with it, but the reality is, is do we trust Jesus the way that this Gentile, this Roman centurion, trusted Jesus? And let's be honest, we probably all have a much longer or uh, well-educated relationship with our Savior than this man had. It's only by the grace of God that he had either heard Jesus speak directly or indirectly through others so that the Holy Spirit used what he heard and gave this man some amazing uh, faith. But the truth is we've all been blessed in that same relationship with Jesus and have heard that very same word of our Savior, and yet we find that oftentimes we don't have that kind of faith. I don't ask the question pridefully because, to be honest, in my own life, I know I have amazed Jesus by my lack of faith far more times than I have amazed my Savior by my depth of faith. But the question needs to be asked, especially considering with what we're dealing with. Betty, you put it on the prayer board. There's two things that God has allowed into our lives recently. That was the second, the more recent one, the conflict that's going on on the other side of the world. That one affects us globally and economically. And of course, if you're not tired enough by it by now, and it, it's still a matter that needs to be addressed, but the virus has affected us all personally and physically. And so it gets to a, a, a point in our lives where after a while we feel like maybe we've been terribly suffering. And not just all the physical effects of everything we have to deal with, but let's be honest, sometimes it feels like we're losing our will to live this life and to live it trusting in Jesus. So let me take the hard question and ask you a much more simple question. Why don't we trust our Savior? Is the problem with Jesus or is the problem really with us. Jesus, I just don't trust you. You don't trust me? No, I mean, I want to trust you. I just don't. <laughs> I have an exercise that I think will really help. You. Oh, okay. Stand here and face this direction. Mm -hmm. Now, do you trust me? Uh, no, I just said I don't trust you. Right, well, this is all part of the exercise. Oh, all right. Okay. Whenever I ask you if you trust me, you say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Even though I don't. It's practice. Okay. So, do you trust me? <laughs> yes. Jesus, I trust you. Now, fall back. Are you going to catch me? Don't worry about that part. Okay, that's the part I'm worried about. <laughs> you can do this, okay? Just trust me. Trust you. Fall back. Okay, well, Jesus, I trust Good. you. Yes, I do trust you. I'm going to fall okay. back. Woo! Oh, okay. <laughs> that's great. Uh, okay. Let's try this again. Just face this direction and keep your feet planted, all right? Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Now, fall back. Okay, I'm going to do it. All right. I'm really going to do it. <laughs> Good. Ah! Oh, Jesus, you really caught me. I didn't think you were going to catch me, but you did. Oh, that was great. That was great. You're ready for level two. Level two, here yes. I come, baby. Woo! No. Whoa. Okay, hold it. <laughs> oh, you know what? You're too close. You need to move back. Ah, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this one's a little bit different, Laura. Oh, okay. Uh, stand here. Uh-huh. But face me. Woo! Forward fall. Okay. I can do that. Wait. Whoa. Okay. Um, wait for my signal. Oh, right. The Jesus signal. Yes. The okay. Jesus signal. Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus. I trust you so much. Good. Fall back. <laughs> That's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> Especially when you do it. Seriously? Of course. Okay, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is nobody over there. I know it looks that way to you. It looks that 
that way. It is that way. You can do this, Laura. Just trust me and fall back. Jesus, I can't do that. We can do it together. I can't. You can. I won't. That's the problem. Not that we can't, but that we won't. The beauty of this lesson is, is that this faith that was given to the centurion, a, a man who wasn't part of God's chosen people and in other ordinary circumstances might never have come into contact with the gospel, was actually put in a position where not only is he exposed to the Jewish faith, but ultimately he can cross paths with Jesus. And he shows us that he has chosen to trust Jesus on this extreme level because that's the only thing that really makes sense to him. Matthew records it this way. He says, for I am myself a man literally of authority, not under authority. Unfortunately, the translation failed to consider a, a grammar point, and it doesn't really make sense as he goes on to explain. I tell people to go do something, they have to go do it. This man was a centurion, and by nature of his rank, he was in control of a hundred soldiers' lives. He said, you go, they went. He said, you come, they had to come. If they disobeyed him, they were executed. That's how it worked in the Roman government and in the Roman army. He got it. He has that kind of authority over 100 people's lives where what he says goes. He equates that with Jesus as the glorious son of God. You say something, it has to happen. You say yes, it will. You say no, it won't. It doesn't matter what it is because of all of nature, all of this world is subservient to God. Not only did he create it, but he rules it. Somewhere along the line, we forget that. And the centurion didn't. He was blessed by God, not only to see it in his everyday life, but he was literally able to have the veil pulled back from his eyes and recognize that Jesus possesses this kind of power and glory to do anything that he asks. The trick is, is that he understood he could only ask Jesus to do things that were according to God's will. And that's where typically we modern-day Christians struggle the most because we don't want to submit to God's will and say, Lord, would you please give me this miracle or would you please do that according to your plan? Oftentimes our request is, would you please do this miracle? Would you please do this according to my plan? This man not only has great faith, but he is genuinely humble. And that's why he didn't want Jesus to come to his house. He didn't want Jesus to be exposed to the enemies and to the criticism. He didn't want to do anything that might defile his Lord, even his own presence as a Gentile, because he wanted to honor God. He knew exactly who he was. He wanted to pay homage to the glory of his Savior. And ultimately, it blows Jesus away. It's one of those four terms that we've learned throughout this epiphany season, the most rare form, this thaumadzo, uh, that talks about marvel or wonder. It, it's that standing with your jaw hitting the floor kind of, I cannot believe what just happened. Jesus, hearing this expression of this man's faith, is amazed. Not just by the fact that the Holy Spirit had done this kind of work in this man's heart, but he finds his faith amongst somebody who's not part of God's chosen people, who's not part of the regular church, who's not part of a family or a history or a culture that was raised trusting in the promise of the Messiah. But this man had that kind of faith, and he trusted that Jesus could do whatever he needed Jesus to do. Let me ask you another question. Wouldn't it be neat if we could blow Jesus away the way this 
centurion did. And again, I'm not asking that in a prideful way. I, I know our faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and all credit and glory goes to God, and it always should. But as God's creatures, and as children of our Heavenly Father, and as members of the body of Christ, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the things we said, and the things we did, and the things we thought, and the things we believed, constantly pointed to the glory of our Savior, rather than made people wonder if we actually believed and trusted in this God we claim to trust in, of all things? Wouldn't it be an exciting thing if every time we confronted a challenge or a difficulty in our lives, our go-to move was, Lord, please help me, but your will be done, and I know you will do the things that you need to do. And if it's not what I want, I trust that what you determine is best for me in this life and most of all for my faith and my eternal life. Wouldn't it just be beautiful if that was an automatic thing for us rather than this uphill slogging challenge of trying to get to the top of the mountain just so we can have a little peek of that glory of our Savior. And yet, I don't know if it's like that for you, but every day it feels like I've got that kind of journey in front of me when it comes to living and expressing my faith. There's some simple rules that if we got them right in our head, I think our hearts could follow, just like the video. Sometimes we actually have to do the motion first before our minds follow along and believe and trust the way that we should. And sometimes that simply means recognizing that Jesus is more glorious than we want to give him credit. We're okay with the little glimpses sometimes, and every once in a while, his glory comes shining through. Maybe it's in a sunrise, or, or maybe it's something that happens to us. We're going, oh, that's a God moment. And we like the idea that God shows up every once in a while in a really big way, like he did on Transfiguration Mount, where all of a sudden he pulls back all of this kind of hiding behind this humanity and just lets us see him for who he really is. The problem is, is that that razzle-dazzle after a while falls quickly by the wayside, just like all the little glimpses that we've had an opportunity to see. We're forgetful. Or, can I just be honest, we all suffer from the same problem of right in front of me-itis. That glory of our God is right there, and we see it, we witness it, we acknowledge it, and then we forget it. And we move on through our daily lives, and too often we want to simply be the God who makes all the decisions. And God says, it's not going to work that way. What I'm trying to teach you is a trust. And so he keeps giving us these little glimpses to remind us that he's the creator, and we are the creatures. That he's the savior, and we're the ones that are rescued. What I'd like to encourage us to do on a regular basis is to open our eyes and look just a little bit more closely. And when you start to look closely, you will actually see the glory of God in ways that maybe you never have before. And every one of them is a beautiful reminder of how much our God loves us and the power that he possesses in order to help us and guide us in this life. Like the next time you hold a baby and it smiles at you or laughs, that's the glory of our Savior coming through because God created that life. And God had the heart to choose to give us that child. If you really look at it from the right perspective, all you can do is say, glorious, that God would choose to do this, that God would choose to trust us with the life of a child to raise it as his own. It's a beautiful moment. It's a God moment. It's a glorious moment. Or when you finally see maybe a servant's heart in action. If it's not your own, maybe it's witnessing somebody else getting down on their hands and knees and doing some of the most humiliating, humble work. It's a God moment. It's a glorious moment because what we see is a reflection of our Savior, the very Son of God, who is fully human, 
And oftentimes that humanity masks his glory. From time to time peels that back and lets us see that he is genuinely eternal son of God. In that moment, we actually see a reflection of our Savior's heart, a Savior who loves us so much that he would get down on his hands and knees for us. It's absolutely glorious. Or even moments like these. When life isn't going the way that we had hoped. When life isn't going the way that we had planned. When maybe God says, it's time for you to learn the lesson again that my will is better than your will. And maybe it doesn't fit with your life plan. Maybe it doesn't fit with your calendar, your schedule. But this I know as God is what you need right now. Because if I don't do this to you, if I don't do this for you, if I don't let you go through this challenge, then you will never appreciate the sacrifice that was made for you. Oftentimes what we don't recognize is that God will use these things to give us a humble heart like the centurion so that we can grow in a deeper trust and appreciation of our glorious God. These moments are some of the most glorious of all, but the problem is, is we can't see it. We fail to see what is right in front of our eyes. And so I hope you get a chance to celebrate this Transfiguration Sunday a little bit differently than maybe you have in the past. Besides the prayer that God would heal me and maybe you from your own right-in-front-of-me-itis situation, that God would also bring spiritual healing to us that we see his glory in every single moment of the day as he shows us his grace, his love, and his mercy, and his power and glory. And that each and every time the Holy Spirit might use that to deepen our faith and to actually trust in the Savior. Let me wrap this up with one other simple question. We are willing to trust Jesus Christ with our eternities. Why are we not so willing to trust him with our earthly lives? He gave himself so that we don't carry these challenges, these problems, even death itself into the next life. That ends here. That too, my friends, is glorious. And when we trust that, it will amaze even our Savior Jesus.